Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, part of our preaching team. Really glad that you're here with us today. As Seth mentioned, this is going to be the last uh, Sunday in our series in the book of Nehemiah. We'll uh, jump back into the Gospel of John uh, next week, and we'll be there for about a month or so before we do something else. So it uh, should, be, should be a lot of fun. You know, uh, I just, uh, a few weeks ago, was spending a lot of time with Molly's family back in Ohio, and I uh, just realized what I've known for a long time. We've been married over 19 years, and, and I just, I realized I've married to, into a really remarkable family. Uh, it's the Bush family, B-U-S-C-H, like the beer, not the president, the Bush family. And, uh, and uh, Molly Bush was the first of the, the Bush's five kids. And it's just, it's a, it's a powerhouse family. My father-in-law, Jeff, uh, played football, uh, married a cheerleader on the college uh, cheerleading team. You know, after he graduated, he went and got two master's degrees and a Ph.D., this is like a serious dude, right? And then he has these five kids. Four out of the five kids ended up playing Division I sports. Molly and her youngest brother were swimmers. Uh, her two other sisters were Division I volleyball players. Uh, the, the three girls all married college uh, athletes as well. And so this is like a family that's intense and competitive and gets after it. And they uh, have lots of goals and lots of ambitions. And one of the things that we've noticed, especially those of us who've married into the family, is we've noticed how there are times when uh, especially the, the girls, you know, Molly and her two sisters will kind of like go, hey, I have an idea. And then that idea just becomes kind of crazy and they go out of control with it. And uh, my, my brother-in-law, Alex, is the guy who actually coined the term. He says, this is called bushing it. And here's, if you want to understand bushing it, here's what it is. Bushing it is like, I haven't worked out in a couple weeks and I'm not feeling very good. I need to get in better shape. Maybe I'll sign up for an Ironman. That's bushing it. Bushing it is like, I haven't read a book all year. Uh, maybe I'll start reading one a day, right? Like this, this is bushing it. It's like, I have a goal and I'm not just gonna have like a doable goal. I'm gonna have a crazy goal and I'm gonna like kill myself to try to do this goal. And so that's what bushing it is. And you may not be someone like that. I mean, like that may not be the speed that you kind of operate at. Maybe you're not really a goal setter. Maybe you're not really like that kind of a person. But there comes a time in life for all of us where we reach a point where we go, something's got to change. I got to change something. I need to make a change. Maybe it's with a certain habit. Maybe it's with a certain relationship. Maybe it's with a certain discipline or a practice that you've had or maybe you used to have and don't have anymore. But, but at some point you sort of realize, man, something's got to change. I need to live differently. And that's the point that we're reaching here in the book of Nehemiah as we finish this up. The book of Nehemiah has been a really interesting book. At the beginning, uh, they're in exile uh, and a few people have started to come back. And Nehemiah, who's in Persia, realizes, man, the, the walls around Jerusalem and the people in Jerusalem are broken down. And he gets permission from the Persian king, Artaxerxes, to come back to Jerusalem and help rebuild the wall. And he galvanizes the people and they begin to give really generously. They sacrifice significantly, and they start putting up this wall. They overcome external opposition. They overcome internal resistance. And what you realize as you read this book of Nehemiah is that it's not just about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. It's about rebuilding the people of God. That's kind of the season we're in as a church, as we all are kind of navigating uh, coming out of 2020. What does it look like to be the faithful people of God in this moment, in this day. 
And so in chapter 9, which we looked at last week, they really began to repent of their sin. They, they put on sackcloth. They put uh, dirt over their heads as a, this picture of how they have repeatedly failed God, even though God has been faithful. They confess their sin. And then what we find today in chapter 10 is that they make a recommitment. This is kind of their last night of camp. And they go, all right, God, I'm going to follow you now. I'm all in. And they make this commitment in chapter 10. Then uh, chapter 11 and 12 really kind of mostly just describes, here's all the people involved with this. Chapters 11 and 12 tell you, this was not just Nehemiah made this commitment. This was a bunch of people made this commitment. At the end of chapter 12, you see that there's this huge party, this huge celebration. It's loud, it's boisterous, because they are celebrating that they've committed themselves to God. And so that's what we're going to look at today, is this commitment, this dedication but also their failure. And so here's the big idea for today's message. We should dedicate ourselves to God, but not depend on our dedication. We should dedicate ourselves to God, but not depend on our dedication. That's what we're gonna look at, that's what we're gonna see in uh, these chapters. So let's pray together, let's ask God's help. Father, we do come before you today asking you to open our hearts, to speak to us through your word. God, the places where we need to be more committed and more dedicated, would you reveal those to us? But at the same time, Lord, would you help us to not trust in or rest in or depend on ourselves, but to depend on you. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. What we read a moment ago is them dedicating themselves, committing themselves to the Lord, and, and we should do that. We should be a people as Christians who dedicate ourselves to God. Let me give you some reasons. If you want to think about it positively, think about it this way. God made us, knows us, loves us, frees us, forgives us, provides for us, and bears with us. God is good to us, and he's good all the time. This is one of the things that we looked at last week, is that God is way better than a lot of us think. And if you stop and think about all the grace that God has shown you, and all the love that he's shown you, and all the goodness that he's provided for you, in light of all that, you should dedicate yourself to him. Now, maybe you're someone who's more motivated, not by the positive stuff, but by the negative stuff. Okay. Well, here's another reason you should dedicate yourself to him is that God is holy and righteous and just and great and mighty. He expects our obedience and he will judge us. Every person under the sound of my voice will hear something before the Lord when we stand before him in judgment at the end of time. So we should dedicate ourselves to him. So whether you're moved by the positive aspects or the fearful aspects, either way, God is great and mighty and good and big and awesome and holy, and we're going to stand before him, and we should dedicate ourselves to him. And Israel came to that same realization, and so in chapter 10, they dedicate themselves to him, and I think it's really interesting to look at the things, that, the, the ways in which they dedicated and committed themselves. Let's look at those together. How did Israel dedicate themselves to God. You see, this is a serious thing. There's lots of people there in verse 28. It's just describing all the different kinds of people. Verse 29 describes the seriousness of this. It says, they join with their brothers, their nobles, and look at what it says. And we enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. This is not saying like, well, we kind of hope to do better. 
They're entering, it says, I mean, this is heavy language, into a curse and an oath. In other words, we understand what's at stake here, God. If we, if we mess up on this, we're in trouble. So this is a serious thing. What do they commit to in this dedication? Well, first, they promise to be holy and distinct. We see this in verse 30. Here's what it says in verse 30. It says, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, uh, this at first maybe doesn't make sense to us, but essentially what they're saying is we are not going to intermarry with people from other nations. Now, this is really important. This is not about race. This is not about a Jewish nationalism. This is about faith. And the reality was that the people from all the other nations worshiped other gods. They were, the, the, the cultures that they were embedded in were embedded in the worshiping of other gods. And so this is basically a commitment to say, hey, we're going to be holy and distinct because we know that what happens throughout our history as the people of Israel is that when we intermarry with people from other faiths, we end up worshiping those false gods. So they say we're going to be holy and distinct. Fascinating, we find the same principle in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7 is a passage you could go to and read about this. And what the Apostle Paul says there is he says, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're married to someone who's not, don't leave. Stay in that relationship. This is the way that the Lord has set it up. And uh, maybe they'll be influenced by your faith and by your humility. Maybe they won't, but either way, stick with the one you're stuck with. But what it says is, if you marry, make sure you marry Paul's words, in the Lord. In other words, marry someone who shares your faith. Marry someone whose allegiance is the same as yours. This is just, this should be obvious to us, but it isn't. Missionary dating is a bad idea. And I know some of you have had, some of you have stories where it worked. You're the exception, not the rule. Missionary dating is generally not a good idea. There's a a couple reasons. One is, if you're saying, well, I'm a Christian, they're not a Christian, but they'll be won over by my faith, and so I'm going to date them and maybe even marry them, here's the thing. Your first thing in that relationship is to say, I don't actually care what God says. That's not a very winsome faith. The second reason is, it's far easier to be pulled into unbelief and into idolatry than it is to pull someone into relationship with God, right? Like Dave Lopez is down here. He's real strong. I'm not as strong, but I'm pretty strong, right? And if it was like, hey, which would be easier for me to pull Dave up on stage or for Dave to pull me off stage? Dave, you're too big. Let's go with somebody else, right? (laughs) Kathy. Okay. Kathy, you're not as strong as Dave, but, but you could still have an easier time pulling me down because that's just the way it works. You have gravity on your side and the gravity is when we tend to embed ourselves in key covenant relationships with people that don't share our faith, it's easy to walk away from the faith. So they promise to be holy and distinct. What about us? And here, let's zoom out just a little bit beyond just kind of the issue of who we marry or date. But go, what about us? Are we committed to be holy, obedient, distinct? To look different than the rest of the world around us that doesn't share our devotion to Jesus? Are we committed to that? Or do we kind of just look like the world? We care about all the same things they care about, the ways they care about them. We communicate the ways they care about them. We think about relationships as transactional as they do. 
We handle our money the same way they do. We work the same way we do. We go, hey, I'm not going to, you know, let my, work, let my faith influence the way I do my job. You're just like the world. Here's what uh, one of the great Christian thinkers, Dallas Willard, here's what he said. He said, we always live what we believe. We just don't always live what we profess we believe. Right, so we say things. We don't, we don't live that all the time, but we do live what we believe. What do you really believe? Are we living like it matters to us to not be stained by worldliness, to actually try to be holy? We should dedicate ourselves to God by promising to be holy and distinct. That's the first way they committed themselves. The second was this. They promised to order their lives around God, in particular by keeping the Sabbath. Look at verse 31. So the second thing has to do with the Sabbath. It says, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of every seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So what they're saying is we're going to order our lives around God. And the way that that was portrayed in the Old Testament was the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath comes out of creation because God created the world, the heaven and earth, in six days, and then he rested on the seventh. And so when God then rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he brings them into Mount Sinai, and he gives them his law, one of the Ten Commandments is, you shall uh, keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. Now, we kind of hear it, and we don't hear it like they heard it, because we hear this idea of, you need to keep the Sabbath, and it sounds really strict, and it sounds really constricting, and it sounds really ugly, and really like, eh, that's going to be a bummer of a day. But think about it for the people of Israel. They were in Egypt where they were enslaved, right? No, no sick days, no PTO, no union organization. No ability to negotiate, no days off, no vacation. And so they come out of that condition where it is only work all the time. And God says, hey, I got good news. You get a day off. It's a gift. It's a blessing. Here's a day to rest. Here's a day to worship. Here's a day to play. Here's a day to enjoy. That's what it was. That's what it was. But it was also a test. It was a test. Would they trust God? Because here's kind of what it is. And think about it, especially in an agrarian society. It's like, well, I trust that God will provide in six days what I could provide in seven days. Like if I, if I work a little less, right? Like even, even you see a company today like Chick-fil-A, right? Think how much money Chick-fil-A is leaving on the table because they're closed on Sundays, and here's the thing, here's what I know is every one of you after this will be like, oh, Chick-fil-A sounds so good. Dang it, they're closed, right? And I'm not at all saying that every company should do what Chick-fil-A did, but I just think when you look at that, you go, that's a significant act of trust. Whatever you think about Chick-fil-A, like that's a significant act of trust to say we're going to be okay if we just are open six days. That's the test of this same thing. Would, would Israel order their life around God? And what you see as you read the whole Old Testament is, is the way that you can discern whether the people of Israel are keeping the law in general is whether they're keeping the Sabbath in particular. It's a key day. Well, what about us? Again, I'm not going to argue here for a strict Sabbatarian kind of view. 
Because you're going to go, well, which day is it? And when exactly does it start? And how does it work? And what can I and can't I do? And just stop it. <laughs> what I want to zoom out is go, here's, there's a principle here of ordering our lives around God. Get this, not making God first, but making him central. Because if he's first, well, then what's second, third, fourth, and fifth doesn't necessarily connect to him. But if he's central, if he's at the hub of the wheel and all the spokes of our lives are touching him, well, that's a whole different story. So let me ask us, what are we resting in? What are we ordering our lives around? What is giving us a sense that we're okay in this world? Is it our relationship with God? Or is it something else? What are we ordering our lives around? Are you ordering your life around work? Where every decision and every action is thought primarily through that lens? Through your money situation? Now listen, money is important. You can't get very far in life without some money. But money is not central. Money is not the core. Are we, we live in our lives like it is? Some of it's our kids and our family, right? Family's a good gift of God. This is the irony. This is the way idolatry works is we often take good things and we turn them into ultimate things. And the Sabbath is saying, no, 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 keep God ultimate. Keep him central. Trust him with your money and your finances and your life. What are we living for? What are we resting in? We should be people who order our lives around God, which by the way means some of us need to start practicing some Sabbath. But beyond that, what are we centering ourselves in? Well, here's the third commitment that they made. Number three, they promised to prioritize worship. To prioritize worship. Verses 32 through 38 uh, really get into the details of all that they were going to do to maintain the worship of God, uh, particularly in the temple. The last verse, verse 38 says, here's kind of the final line, we will not neglect the house of our God. And so it talks about, here's all the ways that we're going to provide for the priests, and here's the things that we're going to give, and here's what we're going to do. And uh, just like they had to trust God with the Sabbath, they had to trust God with these offerings. These offerings were to be their very best. Look at verses 35 and following. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. Verse 37, to bring the first of our dough. They're not talking their money. They're like physical, literal like dough, like bread and yeast and oil and water. Our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine, the oil. The I mean, just on and on. It's so detailed. Like all of our eyes just kind of glazed over during the scripture reading of this part. But this is what they're saying. They're saying we are so committed to maintaining the worship of God and we're going to prioritize this. We're going to make this important in our community. We're not going to let the temple fall into disrepair because if we let the temple fall into disrepair, what will happen is that will be an indication that we're not really worshiping God. So we're bringing our best. It reminds me when I was a kid and I, I was you know, beginning to play competitive baseball. One of the ways you knew the difference between a kind of recreational ball and competitive ball. By the way, they used to have like recreational, competitive, and like travel. 
Now it's just recreational and insane, right? Those are the only options you have. Um, but the way I, I could tell I moved from recreational to competitive was the coaches would say, listen, on the days that we have games, you can't go swimming. I'd be like, what? Now, in Colorado growing up, it wasn't like here where everyone had a pool, a bunch of people had pools, it was easy to go swimming. Like swimming was a big ordeal. And when you went swimming, what you were doing was you were giving the best of your energy to swimming and then you'd show up at the game sunburned and tired and you would play horribly. And so the coach would say, hey, you're going to bring your best. So you can swim on your days off, but on the days we have games, no swimming. That's what they're saying. We're going to prioritize this. We're going to make a decision in advance to prioritize worship. I know a pastor, he says this. He says, Sunday church is a Saturday night decision. Sunday church is a Saturday night decision. See, some of you, you've already made the decision. Our family worships on Sunday. Our family goes to church on Sunday. And there are times where we're out of town and we don't. And there's time when someone's sick and we don't. But like, we don't wake up every day and go like, should we, shouldn't we? How do you feel? How hard is it raining? Others of you tend to, it's more a spontaneous decision. And here's what, here's what I know about any decision that's spontaneous. If you decide, I'm going to spontaneously decide whether to go to church or not, you're going to spontaneously decide not to a lot. So what about us? Is worship a priority? Is centering God a priority? Is saying, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surrender myself to him on a week-in, week-out basis priority. Here's what's interesting. If you look at these three things, these three things all line up with the three biggest challenges for us as fallen humans, sex, money, and power. Think about that. The first one is, God, we're going to trust you with who we can have our most intimate relationships with, and we're going to center you there. The second one is, God, we're going to trust you with our money. We're going to trust you to provide for us, even if we don't work as much as we could. The third one is, God, we're going to trust you and surrender to you. Rather than us calling the shots of our life, we're going to gather in worship of you and say that you have the power over us. Isn't that interesting? That's what they're saying. God, we're going to be holy and distinct. We're going to order our lives around God. We're going to prioritize worship. And here's what I want to tell you that is, is this is what I hope for us. This is what I hope for us as the people of Redemption Gateway who are followers of Jesus. I hope we're committed to these same things. We should dedicate ourselves to God, but we should not depend on our dedication. We shouldn't depend on this, right? They make this big commitment. Uh, chapter 11 and 12 tells you all the people are there. You see so many names here. It's like really actually pretty difficult to read um, because there's just so many hard to pronounce names and all this sort of stuff. And essentially what it's doing is saying, hey, this wasn't just Nehemiah made this commitment. Everybody made this commitment. And then at the end of chapter 12, they decide, hey, we're going to have this dedication of the wall. Uh, we're going to bring together loud music. We're going to have one big, huge party. I think 1220 or 1243 sums it up. It says they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That sounds like a fun worship service to be part of. Doesn't that sound cool? I mean, like I understood when our neighbors were a little upset because on Easter we like pointed the speakers at their house at 6 a.m. And like, oh, here we go, right? Imagine if we got complaints week in, week out because people could actually hear us from inside this building. Could you, could you guys quit singing so loud? It sounds way too happy, right? 
That'd be incredible, right? So they, they repent of their sin. They build the wall. They make this commitment. I mean, chapter 12 is where the, it's, it's just the perfect moment, right? The screen should fade to black. The soundtrack should play. The credits should roll. The lights should come up in the theater. Like this is the moment it should be over. This is the Hollywood ending. It was in disrepute. It was in disrepair. And then one man from Persia came to Jerusalem and rebuilt the wall, overcoming enemies from outside and inside. They fought for faithfulness. They repented of their sin. They made a commitment and the wall was built. Wouldn't that be, that'd be great if it ended there. But we got this pesky chapter 13. Why? I think it's to teach us that while we should dedicate ourselves to God, we can't depend on it. Because chapter 13 is all about the failure. And here's what's fascinating. Chapter 10, they, they make three commitments. Boom, boom, boom. Chapter 13 is in reverse order, them failing those commitments. Boom, boom, boom. We're going to be faithful in our marriages. Eh. We're going to be faithful in the Sabbath. Eh. We're going to be faithful in the temple. Eh. It's just failure. Chapter 13, verses 4 to 14, describes this way that they forsook the temple. They forsook it in such a, an egregious way. That there's actually this man mentioned in verse 5, Tobiah. Tobiah was an Ammonite. The Ammonites were people who were so opposed to the worship of God that actually Deuteronomy said the Ammonites were not to be allowed into the temple at all. Tobiah is also a guy, when you read the early part of Nehemiah, you realize he was one of the main people opposing Nehemiah in the rebuilding project. And this is so egregious that what it says in verse 5 is that one of the priests prepared for Tobiah, this guy who shouldn't even be in the temple at all, prepared for him a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil. So get this. They cleared out the room where they used all the stuff to actually worship God and gave Tobiah a bachelor pad in it. Right, this would be like, like we, we have a kitchen back here and it's, uh, it, it's, it's just, it's really great. And all these faithful folks come in on Saturday mornings. You, you don't know this, but we all benefit from it. They come in on Saturday mornings and they break all of the matzah bread that we have for communion. And they put all the little things of grape juice in the little cups and they seal them up and then they put them in those little in and out fry trays, you know, that we have under here. Don't you, I mean, praise God for the people who do this every week for us. Right, imagine if, if one week we said, you know what, let's get rid of that matzah and that grape juice. Let's just like fill up the cabinets with hard liquor, invite everyone from ASU Poly to come over here and have a big party. Right, like that's what they're doing. And Nehemiah is actually, by this point, he's actually gone back to Persia. He sort of resumed his role and he comes back to Jerusalem, finds out about this and loses it. Verse eight, and I was very angry and I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back their vessels of the house of God. So he cleans the temple, kind of like Jesus does later in his ministry. God, we, will, we won't forsake the temple forsake the temple. Next thing, they forsake the Sabbath. It says in verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah people tread past, tre treading wine presses on 
the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys on the Sabbath. This was the day to center themselves on God. This was the day to trust themselves with God. They're even letting these other people who are foreigners who don't have the laws of God, they're letting them come in and they're like, well, we're not under the Sabbath, so you can buy and sell from us. And the people go along with it. Nehemiah is also (laughs) furious about this. He goes, what are you doing? You're profaning the Sabbath day. The whole reason we got put in exile in the first place, everybody, is because we quit worshiping God. He says, verse 21, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? These people that are like waiting there to do business. If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. He's he's mad. (laughs) We'll keep the Sabbath. No, you won't. Okay, well, what about the other commandment? Verse 23, in those days, I also saw Jews who'd married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. These are the countries that are the most not committed to Yahweh. The, The most idolatry. Nehemiah really loses it here, verse 25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. (laughs) And uh, most of the commentators say when he pulled out the hair, it was probably pulling out the beard hair. And if you lost your beard hair, I mean, think, that would hurt, right? If you lost your beard hair, it's this picture of shame. He's going like, I had to expose the shame of this situation. He is losing it. He says in verse 28 that he chased the guy away. Nehemiah unhinged. Let's just pause for a minute and just ask about Nehemiah's anger for a moment. What's going on there? Is this okay? Is, it like you're, is this like good leadership pulls out people's beards? Like, I know some leaders that would really like that to be what good leadership was. Here's what uh, theologian and commentator J.I. Packer, he says this about it. He says, if now we have a problem with Nehemiah's anger, We should realize that it was a deep feeling of outrage that expressed not self-absorbed resentment nor personal hostility, but the anguish of a heart that longed for God's glory and hated, the word is not too strong, all that obscured and obstructed it. So Nehemiah's anger here is justified. He's not angry because they've offended him or hurt him. He's angry because they're forsaking God again and he knows what happens when we forsake God. Everything in our life goes terrible. So he's angry. But here's the thing, his anger still didn't work. Not in the long run, worked for a little bit, right? You lose it at your kids, they'll be afraid of you for a little bit. But as it says in James, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So it doesn't work for long. They fail and they fail and they fail. And friends, listen, we Two will fail. We will. We do. Listen, it's not that we might. It's not that we could. It's that we will. You can make commitments to God. You can bush it in your commitments to God. And you will fail. Why? Because we need someone stronger than ourselves. We need something stronger than ourselves. We don't have the willpower. If we could fix it, we would have by now. And yet the story of Israel and the story of the church, the story of our lives is that over and over and over, we fail. We need someone better than Nehemiah. 
The Apostle Paul dealt with this very same issue in Romans chapter 7. Here was his answer. He said, so I find to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's our only hope. See, like Nehemiah, Jesus did go cleanse out the temple when he got angry one day. But better than Nehemiah, Jesus doesn't shame those who fail. He takes the shame that failures like you and I deserve. Right? Instead of chasing people out of the city, Jesus is chased out of the city. Instead of beating people and cursing people and pulling out their hair, Jesus is beaten and cursed and has his hair pulled out. Jesus is hung naked on a cross with a crown of thorns and a robe of mockery. He's ashamed. Why? So that he would absorb the shame and the guilt and the sin that would finally cleanse us, not from outside in of our commitments and our dedication and of laws, but inside out from the spirit of God being poured into our hearts. This is the hope of the gospel. This is our only hope. He absorbs our sin. He sends his spirit. He gives us new life. And even then we still fail, right? Here, here. Here's what we are. I was traveling the last number of weeks with our family, and you know, I love, I love one of my favorite things at the airport is the moving sidewalks. You know, the moving sidewalks, right? And a big family like ours, there's always, you know, we're going on the moving sidewalk, and there's always somebody in our family who's like, I can go faster without it, right? And so they're like walking normal, right? And you're just walking past them. Hey, how's it going? Right, and you realize like you're just zooming by them, and you, you're like, especially the, the little kids are like, I'm faster than you. Right? And what you realize is, no, you're not. You're being carried by a moving sidewalk. And here's the thing. Even if like in front of you is someone that somehow has still not figured out that you stand on the right and you walk on the left, even if they're just taking up the whole thing and, and their luggage is on the ground there and you're like messing around with your kids and you trip on the thing and you fall down, do you know what happens? You keep moving. Why? Because it's not you. It's the power of the escalator. That's our Christian life. We try to walk. We try to be faithful. Sometimes we even run. But we're going to trip. And when we trip and when we fall, he's going to carry us. That's what has to be rebuilt. Yes, we should be committed to the Lord. But let's depend on him, not on our commitment. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today thankful for your goodness and your faithfulness and your grace. God, we wish that we didn't fail so much. We wish we had more resolve and we wish we had more inherent goodness. And we wish that we wanted the things that you say are best for us. But God, too often we... We don't. The allure of sex and money and power. The temptation to put ourselves at the center of the world. It's just so strong.
And so God, we ask you now that you would forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of unrighteousness. God, would we not be less committed to follow you, but as we're committed to follow you, would we remember that you're the one carrying us and that you are what life is about. We thank you, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.